The United States campaign against the People's Republic of China is growing with every passing day. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. We're very happy to be bringing you a special Friday podcast today. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program and subscribing. We are an independent show and we thank you for your support. We cannot do this show without your support. Today, we'll be talking to one of our favorite guests, Dr. Ken Hammond, Professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. He is the founding director of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State University, and he is an organizer and activist with Pivot to Peace. Ken Hammond, welcome back. Glad to be back, Brian. Ken, we wanted to talk about the intensifying war. It's really a war. Some people call it a cold war. It's a sort of a pre-war between the United States and the People's Republic of China. And this war is clearly at the initiative of the United States. I'm looking at a recent set of headlines about a meeting between the United States FBI and the UK's MI5, the two leading intelligence agencies in the United States and Britain, an unprecedented meeting. This is the leadership of the intelligence organizations in the U.S. and Great Britain. Here it is, heads of FBI and MI5. Issue strong warning about the threat to the West from China. Speaking alongside his British counterpart in London, FBI Director Christopher Wray issued his starkest warning yet about the national security threat to the West from China even as intelligence officials in Washington released a report about Beijing's efforts to influence state and local politics in the United States. In a first-ever joint appearance Wednesday with the director of Britain's MI5, the UK's domestic intelligence agency raised the possibility that China might be inching closer to invading Taiwan noting that Beijing has been taking steps to shield its economy from sanctions that would come after such a move. In our world, this is a quote, we call that kind of behavior a clue. That's Christopher Ray speaking. It would represent one of the most horrific business disruptions the world has ever seen. Ken Hammond, all of this seems so bizarre, absurd, ludicrous. The fact that the media, NBC News, can write this with a straight face. I mean, why would China be trying to shield itself from U.S. economic sanctions? Even the thought of it, according to this article and according to Christopher Wray, represents one of the most horrific 
business disruptions the world has ever seen. Not the sanctions themselves, but the efforts by China to shield itself from the impact, the tragic draconian impact of U.S.-imposed economic sanctions, and all of it with this kind of Alice in Wonderland reality-turned-upside-down presentation where China trying to protect itself from U.S. economic sanctions is presented as the aggressor. Anyway, it was an unprecedented meeting. The leaders of the two main intelligence arms, domestic intelligence, in the case of the United States, the FBI, meeting together. Anyway, let's get started. What are your thoughts? Well, I think your invocation of the uh, Alice through the looking glass is very apt because what we have here is a you know classical kind of scenario. On the one hand, American and in this case, British leaders projecting onto the other, as we say, onto the other side of this relationship, the same kinds of attitudes and behaviors and, and manipulations, which they routinely pursue and carry out on their own, ostensibly in the in you know the interests of America, although really of course in the interests of American and British elites. This idea, you know, that as you say, that that by seeking to protect itself, by seeking to develop itself in the first place, China is somehow a threat. We hear a lot, not just from these guys, but of course from Secretary of State Blinken and President Biden and others, this invocation of the international rules-based order. And as has been pointed out many times, of course, there is an international rules-based order, and it's an order based on rules made up by the United States. And so anything that steps out of that, anything that seeks to create spaces of autonomy, spaces of self-development for people around the world is seen as disrupting, as breaking with the international rules-based order. So this is another round in that ongoing campaign. The Director of National Intelligence in the United States also released a document last week, which went through many, many of the same points that were made by you know, the FBI and MI5. And you know, there's just this thing that whatever China does is cast as aggressive, is cast as disruptive or subversive or you know, trying to destroy the legitimate good work that the United States is, is so eager to do to help the people of the world. When in fact, of course, anyone with any kind of objective perspective or analysis can see that all that China is trying to do, first and foremost, is create a situation in which it can pursue its own development, improve the livelihoods of its people, solve some of the challenges that they're facing, contribute to resolving fundamental existential issues like climate change and global warming. But when they do that, because they do so out from under the dominance, out from under the the sort of guiding hand, if you will, to put it at its most gentle, of the United States, that can only be seen as aggressive disruption of the way that the world should be ordered. Ken, in the NBC article, the MI5 Director General Ken McCollum, according to NBC, said that the appearance at the agency's headquarters was, as I mentioned before, the first time the FBI and MI5 leaders have held a public event together. And then NBC writes these words. He echoed a point Ray and U.S. politicians from both parties have been making in recent years, that a long-standing hope about China's evolution 
had been dashed by its behavior under President Xi Jinping. I mean, outside of the condescending, patronizing, and racist you know, language about the behavior of China under President Xi Jinping, I want to go right to the heart of the matter. Here's McCollum's quote, quote, the widespread Western assumption that growing prosperity within China and increasing connectivity with the West would automatically lead to a greater political freedom has been shown to be plain wrong, McCallum said. Quote, but the Chinese Communist Party is interested in our democratic media and legal systems, not to emulate them, sadly, but to use them for its own gain. Now, there's a a couple of elements of this, Ken, that I think are important. One is, again, the racist sort of patronizing, condescending language of the media as if Xi Jinping's behavior is like he's like this child. He's this underling. He's this subservient force. And China is, too. But aside from that, the idea that as the Chinese Communist Party, you know, continued to exercise political control in China and as China was integrated into the world capitalist economy, and as China continued to become more prosperous as a result of its economic development, that would automatically mean that China would emulate the West, meaning that China would basically overthrow the Communist Party of China. By emulating the West, it means really that's code language for China would go the way of the Soviet Union, that China would have a capitalist counter-revolution. And it's clear that the point of demarcation as that Xi Jinping's leadership is identified, whether it's demagogic or not, it's identified by the intelligence agencies and all of the U.S. capitalist-owned media that Xi Jinping's emergence as a leader dashed the hopes of the West that there would be a capitalist counter-revolution. And thus, and from my point of view, and thus, the United States and Britain have decided if you're not going to have a capitalist counter-revolution and overthrow the rule of the Communist Party of China, we must do it for you. We must overthrow that government. That's where the entire political discourse changes. That's when the United States has the pivot to Asia. That's when the United States readies a new doctrine preparing the United States for major power conflict. Well, I think that's exactly right. I I think that that part of the joint statement was actually one of the more, in a sense, if I can say it, uh, one of the more refreshing and honest contributions that they made, because that's a a fairly accurate portrayal, obviously in an inverted uh, value framework, but it's a fairly accurate portrayal, as, as you note, of what has happened. I think that we can contextualize that just a little bit by thinking taking it back just slightly before the pivot to Asia and Xi Jinping's election. The pivot to Asia, of course, is launched in November of 2011. Xi Jinping is elected to his leadership positions in 2012 and assumes those offices in 2013. But if we go back just slightly prior to that, to the global economic crisis of 2008, I think in some ways that is a point at which Western analysts and eventually Western leaders begin to 
realize that this this false hope, this self-delusion that they had entertained since the 1990s, that China was going to go down this path of color revolution or some sort of domestic political transformation, that that simply wasn't going to happen. Because when China dealt with the global meltdown in 2008 and over the next few years, they did so in a way that made it very clear that it is the in a sense, the socialist core of their economy, of their legal system, of their political culture, if you will, that allowed them to come through that, to bring China through that with much less damage, with much less disruption, even though they faced very, very serious challenges. 20 million people were laid off from their jobs when international consumer demand collapsed in 2008, 2009. But instead of dumping those people on the street, China had its system of household registrations. It provided basic social services. We're not saying everybody went to live in the lap of luxury, but their basic needs were taken care of. They could go back to their villages or, you know, where they could find they had housing provided. They had educational opportunities for their children. They had health care provided. And the system there is designed to serve the needs of the people within the real world constraints of resource availability. But nonetheless, that is the objective. That's the orientation of the Chinese system. And of course, we've seen that much more recently in the way that China has, you know, saved probably millions of lives through its handling of the COVID pandemic. But in 2008 and over the following years, China's system responded in a way that was totally at variance with the sort of, you know, fend for yourself attitude of the West. And that, I think that was one thing that began to signal to, as I say, the Western analysts and eventually politicians that China was actually serious about this socialism thing, serious about this. Not that they've achieved it, not that they've attained it, but that that is still the goal, the objective, the, the future toward which they are working. And so that then leads to a hardening of American attitudes and a sense which you hear in the language in these statements of sort of uh, frustration and anger that almost as if the Chinese had kind of suckered us, you know, kind of suckered the West. And now these analysts and these politicians are like, well, how can they pull something like this? We're going to teach them a lesson, you know. And it's the reality is that leads to the pivot to Asia and Secretary of State Clinton's article about, you know, the new American Pacific century and all that. And that in turn helps to consolidate, helps the Chinese understand the need to consolidate their leadership to move even more strongly in those directions. And so we get the election of Xi Jinping and the adoption by the Chinese of a much more self-confident, self-assertive attitude, both in terms of you know their domestic politics, their domestic society, but even more so perhaps in terms of their relationship with the outside world, particularly their relationship with the United States and the global capitalist system. No longer being so deferential, no longer feeling that they had to kind of keep their heads down and go along, but now able to say, look, we have accomplished great things. We're going to continue to do so. and We're going to continue to pursue our goals. Xi Jinping talks about you know, fulfilling the original mission of the revolution to transform the lives of the people and transform the economy, the society of China. And that is the task about upon which, you know, China is, is embarked, has been embarked and remains so. So I think that there is a recognition 
in those statements by these guys that there was a change. The changes in American and Western thinking, the changes in the attitude and the posture of the West, not in the attitude and the posture of China. It isn't that China suddenly became aggressive. It's that China no longer had to be subservient, subordinate, you know, deferential. And that does not go down well. And that has triggered this whole campaign of aggression, you know, military provocations, all sorts of demonization. It's been a pretty relentless, uh, you know, more than a decade now. And China has simply had to had to respond to that. But even those responses, as we started out talking about, get portrayed as new forms of aggression, new forms of disruption. And that, of course, is kind of the framework within which we have to try to navigate this relationship. Ken, I want to talk to you about consciousness inside of China and commensurate with or parallel with consciousness in the United States about U.S.-China relations. And and words matter, language matters, language that is used over and over again helps shape the political discourse, the narrative, and as a consequence, it helps shape consciousness. And when I talk about consciousness, I mean consciousness on a mass scale, a societal kind of consciousness. For instance, I'm looking at Anthony Blinken's speeches after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They're all over the U.S. media. I'm looking at Politico. Blinken calls China, quote, most serious long-term threat to world order. And you could go through 20 more articles where the U.S. is, you know, using the language China as a threat. China is a threat to the world order, sort of an existential threat. And at the same time, anti-China ideas and consciousness has become hardened inside the United States within public opinion. It has a corresponding rise of anti-Asian hate crimes taking place on the streets of this country in the United States. We kind of know about that. I want to talk about the consciousness inside of China because you've been in China for a long time. You've been there since, I mean, not only there, you're here and in China, but you've been teaching in China, visiting China regularly since the early 1980s. You've lived for a while in China. The language from the Chinese media and the Chinese government, the Chinese foreign ministry, has also shifted as the U.S. has become more strident, more aggressive. China has been sort of as you said, more self-confident, less afraid, perhaps less worried about speaking its mind and calling out the United States rather than sort of just keeping quiet even when China disagreed with U.S. policies. And at the same time, the Chinese people could measure like what happened to Chinese people during the 2008-9 economic crisis when 30 million people in the United States lost their jobs and 9 million families face foreclosure, you know, Chinese people could measure what happened to American workers compared to how the government treated them. Likewise with COVID, you know, COVID, there are maybe five or 6,000 deaths in China, a country of 1.4 billion people, while the U.S., one quarter the size has more than a million deaths. So the Chinese people get to measure China's performance versus the U.S. But I want to talk about how China as a consequence of these developments or how Chinese people view the United States? Because it feels to me from a distance, and I haven't lived there, 
that while there was a very favorable, I would say more or less favorable attitude towards the United States earlier, and American soft power was sort of very strongly felt, especially within Chinese academic circles, maybe Chinese think tanks or Western think tanks located in Beijing, people who were looking really, really towards the West and really maybe not towards socialism. I just wonder if those attitudes, if you can tell or detect whether there's been an attitudinal shift in some parts of the population, maybe among young people, or as a consequence of the Chinese government policies as regards to academia. Anyway, just what's the impact on China? Well, that you know, this is a very, very complex matter. And I think that it's a great thing in some ways that it's such a complex matter because, you know, here in the West, bourgeois propaganda, you know, and in some ways, kind of the conventional wisdom paints this image of China as a kind of monolithic entity. Uh, you know, we hear Xi Jinping referred to as a dictator or the Communist Party referred to as a dictatorship. And there's this mythology of censorship and thought control and all this kind of stuff. And the reality of China is, is very, very, very different. And there's a rich and lively discourse at many, many different levels in society. You know, I mean, within political circles, certainly there's a, a very, very lively political conversation that goes on every day within the Communist Party, but also in academic circles outside the party in the lives of ordinary people. The Chinese internet is a remarkably dynamic environment. And, you know, that's something, and just even publishing, you know, the, the magazines and newspapers and books that come out are very, very rich. That, that sort of intellectual environment. And that's important to understand because there was a, um, there's a word in Chinese, ru, which means heat or hot, something that's hot. And it's used to refer to fashion or trendiness or something like that. They'll say there's a such and such a ru, such and such a, a heat wave of something. And in the, in the 90s, especially, but even beginning in the 80s, there was a, a heat wave for Western, really neoliberal economic thinkers. And uh, you'd go into bookstores and there'd be all these Chinese translations of texts from the West, Jeffrey Sachs or other you know, figures like that with their, their prescriptions for market reforms and things like that. And of course, beginning in the 80s, China has used market reforms, has used market mechanisms to drive the development of its productive economy. And in the wake of that, or as that process has been going forward, there's been a lot of reading and talking and conversation about economics, about how markets work and how the, what's the relationship between markets and society, between markets and the government. And that has been very lively and very wide open. And, you know, there's China has navigated a uh, sometimes rather treacherous course with this because, you know, left to their own, markets can get out of control, as we well know. And they are not a sort of intrinsic force for good, you know, the, the mythologies of Adam Smith and all that notwithstanding. You know, we understand that markets really drive inequality and exploitation and all that. And there are reasons why the Chinese choose to use market mechanisms, but, you know, they also need to be very, very cautious in the way that that process goes forward. And I think for the most part, they have been. But there are certainly those within the party, within academic circles, in society at large, who do think about a more 
you know, even greater reform. Let's push onward. Let's open things up even more. And right now, of course, this last decade plus, the party has been and the state have been reasserting a more dynamic mode of leadership. And that obviously has had significant benefits. We can talk about everything from poverty reduction to, you know, dealing with environmental challenges to, of course, the handling of COVID and all that. But it takes place within a highly complex and, and as I say, very lively discursive field of political culture. And I think that that's an important thing to bear in mind. I do think especially in the wake of COVID, that there has been a kind of deepening, if you will, of a sense of identification of most people with this idea of re-engaging with the original objectives of the revolution. A renewed or, or maybe re-intensified engagement, a commitment to the goal of socialist transformation, which is not, you know, it's not something that's universally uh, held and not something that's the same for everyone who, who embraces even those ideas. But I think that there has been a deepening of that. And perhaps on an even broader level, the adoption of this just relentless hostility the lies, the distortions, the demonization, the sanctions, the efforts to, to wall off technology supplies from China, to, to really thwart, to the degree that they can, China's development. You know, the Chinese people understand that the party and the state have worked tirelessly to improve the conditions of their lives. That doesn't mean that people don't complain about the government. It doesn't mean that everybody just thinks that it's one big group hug all the time. But, it, you know, people do understand and recognize. And, you know, you see this in both in media and publications, but also just in conversations with people. You know, if you follow things on the Internet. Yes, everybody likes to complain about stuff. That's true of humanity in general, I think. But when you take it down to the next level or up to the next level, I don't know, there's widespread support, both for the leadership that's in place and more importantly, for the goals and objectives that guide Chinese policy. I think that that's something that, again, you know, this idea of, of China as this sort of dark, dictatorial environment, when people from outside China, when people from the West encounter those realities, the reality of what life in China is actually like, it blows their minds. And they're like, what's going on here? We don't understand this. And I think that that's, it's very difficult. One of the reasons that uh, you know, the government here has acted so decisively to try to limit the knowledge that Americans have about China is because they fear that if Americans understood the realities of what life in China is like, they would lose the ability to demonize China in the way that those in power here seek to do. Shutting down Confucius Institutes, limiting uh, educational exchanges, intimidating Chinese scholars who are here on research, or American academics who work with Chinese institutions. All of those things are designed to suppress, to restrict knowledge and understanding of what's going on in China. And I think that's a rather desperate campaign driven by fear, fear of the American people themselves, fear that when the American people do know about China, do know about the realities there, they won't be willing to tolerate the kind of policies that we direct towards China today. Anthony Blinken, in that article that I was referring to in Politico, he says, quote, Beijing's vision would move us away from the universal values that have sustained so much of the world's progress. 
Now, Ken, what does that mean? I mean, what are the universal values that have sustained so much of the world's progress? When Anthony Blinken in the U.S. are talking about progress, they usually mean economic progress. They usually mean like society has advanced, that there's more wealth, there's more commodities, there's more access to goods and services. That I mean, generally speaking, when they talk about progress, they're talking about going from a lower level of economic development to a higher level of economic development. Now, that higher level of economic development, he says, was driven by universal values. And I'm thinking like, okay, let's look at the United States. Just, I mean, objectively, the United States separated from Great Britain when it with the Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1776. And finally, Britain surrenders in 1783. A constitution is formed in 1787. A new government comes into being. But during the time, the 200 years before the so-called War of Independence, and then the next 100 years afterwards, U.S. economic progress is really propelled by enslaved labor, the enslavement of human beings, like not a small part of the population. The majority of the population in South Carolina, for instance, the majority at the time of the American Revolution were enslaved people, the majority. Most of that state, for instance, was enslaved. And then this system of slavery goes on all the way up until 1865, when it's replaced a few years after the Civil War with a new system of peonage and sharecropping, uh, semi-slavery. And then you think about, okay, the U.S. also developed by the exploitation of workers on the job, including the use of child labor and terrible conditions such that the American labor movement was born in blood, people fighting for basic rights, for a workday that wasn't 14 hours long or not having to have children you know, in sweatshops or the conquering of the lands of the indigenous people of North America, which, you know, everyone recognizes as a genocide. Or in 1836, the U.S. war against Mexico, where half of Mexico, half, is stolen from Mexico through a military conquest. So Texas, where you live in New Mexico, all the way up to and including California, stolen. And then at the turn of the century, at the beginning of the 20th century or right before it, the U.S. invades Cuba and Puerto Rico and then creates a Panama Canal and kills a million Filipinos taking over the Philippines. I mean, when you think about the progress of American capitalism and then link it to universal values, it's such a complete 100% fraud. It's such a fraudulent mythology. And yet Blinken says these kind of obviously bizarre, absurd, and wrong statements about China's vision isn't based on the progress created by universal values, as if those universal values have to do with human rights or something, or democracy. And the media just blandly, you know, sort of says it over and over again. I think it's really important for our listeners to really understand how this language, which forms consciousness, in this case, anti-China consciousness, how bogus it is. Absolutely. I think that when Blinken or any of these, you know, ruling class spokespersons articulate that stuff, 
really, they're speaking a kind of code that when they hear it amongst themselves, you know, it's kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. They understand what they mean. When Lincoln talks about, you know, universal values, what he really means is the universal extraction of surplus value from the labor of workers, right? And when he talks about progress, what he really means is capital accumulation. You know, that's what has been going on. That's what's been driving, just as you say, whether it's, you know, from the enslaved workers of the American South, whether it's from the beginnings of industrial development in the United States. And, you know, some people talk about the Civil War as the war to create a free labor market so that wage labor could be universally imposed. Well, there's a universal value for you, you know, the subordination of labor through wages. They understand amongst themselves exactly what they mean. But they cloak it in this terminology and in this rhetoric that is designed both to obfuscate their real meanings and to induce a sense amongst ordinary people who have their own values and their own goals and their own ambitions that there's a connection between them, that the system, the capitalist system, the imperialist system is one which is in their interest and that China's resistance to, China's opposition to the dominance, the global dominance of American imperialism is in some way hostile to the American people themselves, which of course is not at all the case. I think another aspect of that, another element of that is this very idea of universal values to begin with. I mean, we could talk about some universal values, I suppose, in terms of respect for for life, respect for individual humanity and respect perhaps for the for the planet for the environment within which we live but that's not the kind of thing they're talking about when they talk about universal values what they mean really is the projection outward from the west from the united states and from western europe of a set of political institutions political cultural behaviors you know the idea for example simply the idea that democracy can only be a matter of organized political parties preferably two or maybe three but a, a relatively small number of organized political parties who alternate uh, passing control of state institutions back and forth amongst themselves and that democracy what it really means is that at some kind of regular or even irregular, like with a parliamentary system, interval, everybody gets to, you know, say, yes, I vote for this individual or that individual, who then goes off and does whatever they choose over the course of their terms in office. And that those momentary interventions, those moments when people can vote, that that somehow is the the one and only form in which democracy can be can be real and substantive. And that's not universalism. That's the most insidious kind of parochialism because it's saying, you know, we are the only ones that have developed the proper institutions and everyone else on the planet, everyone else in the world needs to conform to our way of doing things or, you know, it's our way or the highway, you know. And that just so goes against any kind of real serious materialist understanding of the world. People's cultures are expressions of their environments, of their history, of their economic relations in a given moment, in a given historical period. And they have evolved around the world over long historical trajectories in ways that give rise to systems today that can be widely variant and yet still be true, genuine expressions of the democratic aspirations, the democratic realities of divergent societies. China doesn't have 
you know, the kind of money-driven two-party system that the United States does. Does that mean that China is not democratic and the United States is? I would suggest that there's a greater connection between the leadership of China, the 95 million people in the Communist Party, one out of every seven adults playing an active role, not just going in and checking a box every four years, but an active role in the social management of social affairs, as opposed to the billionaire club of American capitalist bourgeois parties that only opens itself up for for validation of carefully pre-selected candidates on this intermittent basis. But the Americans, the Westerners in general, because of you know a century and a half or so of global dominance, of colonial imperialist dominance of the world, they really came to think. I mean, I think that they're sincere in this belief, deluded and horrible as it may be, that their values, that everyone should conform to their values because they were able to impose that for such a long time. It became kind of the norm. But those days are gone. That's what drives them crazy. It's not just the loss of of their economic interests, although, of course, that's the foundation of it. But it is also kind of culturally and psychologically the loss of the idea that everybody wanted to be us. Everybody wanted to be an American. America had the greatest culture, the greatest values, the greatest society, you know. And the fact that people around the world today are like, you know, we'd like to do our own thing. We have our own culture. We have our own history. We have our own values. We have our own way of organizing our society and pursuing the enhancement of our livelihoods. That's devastating to the consciousness of American and Western European elites. And the kind of hysteria that we see, the kind of just lashing out and as I've said before, you know, sort of this demonization that the other, the other side of that equation for us, mostly China, has to be evil, has to be dictatorial. They have to be kind of almost monstrous, you know, because it's so deeply unsettling and threatening to both the economic realities and the cultural expressions of imperialist domination. Well, speaking of hysteria, two days ago, New York City put out a public service announcement about a nuclear attack in New York, leaving many, according to NPR, many New York City residents confused. Here's the NPR story. A nuclear attack has not hit New York, but the city's emergency management department wants residents to be prepared if one does occur. The department released a short video titled Nuclear Preparedness Public Service Announcement on Monday. But not much else was shared other than New York City emergency management shares important steps for New Yorkers to follow if a nuclear attack occurs. That's the caption, Ken. (laughs) The video has been viewed by more than a half a million people, more than 500,000 times. It opens with a narrator saying, so there's been a nuclear attack. Don't ask me how or why. Just know that the big one has hit. Okay, so what do we do? And then it outlines three big steps of action for what to do in the event of a nuclear attack include getting inside. Yes, Ken, if you're in New York and there is a nuclear missile strike or nuclear bomb, be sure to stay inside (laughs) and then stay tuned to the media for more information and signing up for text alerts from the city. Residents were also urged to move to the interior of the buildings away from windows and doors which the announcement says they should close. Mayor Eric Adams of New York City said, yes, we did this. It was good. It's all about preparedness, taking necessary steps 
after what happened in Ukraine, close quote. Anyway, (laughs) Ken, the old Cold War is back. You and I probably are old enough that we experienced all those nuclear drills. But I want to talk to you. I want to get your, your impression, your reaction to this news, because again, this is shaping consciousness. But then I also want to talk about the difference between this and the former so-called Cold War. Well, it's one of those things where on one level, it's just so horrifying. It's so bad. You kind of have to laugh. I mean, it's just, you shake your head. I'm shaking my head right now. It's just one hardly knows what to make of it. I mean, on one hand, of course, it's a horrible thing. It's clearly designed to be part of the preparation of the American people for uh, conflict, conflict which might even touch this country, you know, which is not something that we've ever been used to since the Civil War. It's just, as you say, I mean, evoking the, the old Cold War, those duck and cover, get under your desk kinds of things we went through in elementary school. The idea that we might revive that or return to that, we can talk about, about that implication in a moment. But on the other hand, it's also the case that really go into your building and close the doors and windows. Don't they have any idea what a nuclear attack is like? Haven't they seen pictures of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? The center of cities are vaporized. This just goes away. There's no, you know, let's hang out and see how we can cope with things after the bomb. The bomb is it. I mean, there's enough nuclear weapons on the planet to eliminate basically everybody five or six times over, I think, you know. So the idea that we're going to have some strategy for some plan for how New York City New Yorkers, what are they going to come out of their basements and go shopping? I mean, that's just absurd. But the very absurdity of it is itself kind of terrifying. The idea that authorities of any kind think that putting something like this out is a good idea. But obviously, as the mayor says, linking it to, oh, the events in Ukraine, talk about demonization, the idea that this conflict in Ukraine, whatever one may think of it, however it may have evolved, you know, is in some ways, you know, foreshadowing what Russian nuclear attacks on American cities. It's so over the top. It's so hysterical that it's kind of hard to assimilate. It's kind of hard to take it seriously and get a grip on it. And yet it's very, very serious. And and we need to Well, we just need to push back against this kind of political intimidation, really, of the American people. Yeah. Let me put it this way, Ken. This actually, even though for those of us who are older or more aware of world events might be like, what the hell or what the F, (laughs) you know, it does have the impact of shaping consciousness, like fear and hostility of China and Russia prepared for existential threat. That means, too, if anybody challenges the U.S. foreign policy of absolute violence against China or this sort of violent presentation, this hostile presentation, then you're cavorting with an enemy which has a capacity to you know, eliminate life as we know it in America through a nuclear attack. This was part of the Cold War witch hunt that communists and socialists, leftists, were you know part of a fifth column because they wanted peace with the Soviet Union or better relations with the Soviet Union, or they wanted socialism in the United States. They all became you know, sort of located as a fifth column, the agents of an enemy state that had a nuclear capacity with nuclear missiles trained on us. And as kids, we all, you know, every couple of weeks, we had to get under our desks 
and put our hands over our head and our the other arm over our face to protect ourselves from the nuclear blast. Well, it did have a big impact. I mean, one, we were glad to get out of school or to have any kind of drill to stop going to school for a moment. But aside from the, the enjoyable recreational parts of the drill, <laughs> it did create the feeling that, you know, the country, this could happen. And I can remember as a really young kid that when Nikita Khrushchev was replaced as the general secretary of the Communist Party Politburo. I thought, oh, that's great. I was a child. I thought, oh, that's great. That means maybe there won't be a war because obviously the war danger came from Russia. The war danger came from the Soviet Union because that's what we were trained to think. We were just kids. We were getting under our desks, getting prepared for nuclear attack from the Soviet Union. So even though that was a completely ridiculous notion of mine as a child, that's how you know a child's consciousness is formed. And in fact, that's how society's consciousness is formed. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember those same drills. I remember one of the more absurd things at a certain point, late 50s, the authorities in Ohio issued dog tags for elementary school students. You were supposed to wear these around your neck. And we all understood that that you know that was so your body could be identified after you know you were incinerated or something. I mean, it was just they gave us these things, and it was just like horrifying. But exactly as you say, it it was designed. The whole thing was designed not as some sort of practical defense measure or all this, but as a psychological exercise, as a way of inculcating that fear, that demonization, that othering that separation, that division, so that American people and Soviet people would see each other as the enemy. That was the idea, that we were each other's enemies. Even though, of course, the message in the Soviet Union, the message in China has always been, you know, that the enemy is not the American people, but, you know, the policies of the American government and those who make them, you know. And I think that that, that, that by itself, of course, tells us tells us a lot about some of the differences in those systems. But yeah, the idea that now we're getting this kind of, these kinds of, of, of announcements and, and things, it really is uh, setting the stage, uh, creating a, a culture of fear, creating a culture of anticipation that's very, very dangerous. And it's matched, of course, with, it's not just words, it's matched with actions. You know, of course, it's expansion, the, the relentless push to the East by NATO, that has, you know, precipitated the situation that we have in Ukraine today. The United States continues to carry out routine provocations in the South China Sea, sending American naval forces through the Taiwan Strait, which is clearly China's territorial waters. You know, these things go on also on a daily basis. And, you know, the challenge for us, the challenge for people who want to oppose American imperialism, want to promote a system, you know, the changes of systems around the world promote the development of, of a better future, promote, as the program that we're talking on now is uh, entitled, you know, promote the socialist program, is something that we need to prepare ourselves and we need to continue to carry on pushing back against this kind of consciousness shaping that is being carried on so relentlessly by the ruling class and, and its institutions. Ken, I want to go to our final topic here, final question in a way. The Cold War went through different stages and phases. There was the stage between 1945 and I would say 
the mid-1950s. And that was when the U.S. had at first a monopoly on nuclear weapons, the only country to have nuclear weapons and the only country to use nuclear weapons, which it did in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945 as a demonstration to the Soviet Union and to others that the U.S. not only possessed a weapon that they did not possess, a weapon of genuine mass destruction, but that they were prepared to use it and to use it against civilians because Nagasaki and Hiroshima were civilian cities. They didn't have military value. They were picked and deliberately picked for a number of reasons, but one of them was to show, I think, the absolute capacity of the U.S. to use limitless violence against a foe. So it had this really profound, intimidating impact, which was the plan. The plan was to intimidate all those who didn't have nuclear weapons. Yeah, that's called terrorism. Yeah, also known as terrorism. And then in the 1950s, the Soviet Union started to really develop a lot of nuclear weapons. They were on a very, you know, very escalated path to get nuclear weapons. There was a lot of atmospheric nuclear tests that were conducted by both sides. Lots of destruction to the environment, including the state where you are in New Mexico in particular. But then by the, by the mid-70s, by the mid-70s, or maybe even before the mid-70s, I would say by the late 1960s, actually, there was a certain equilibrium, a certain military parity. The Soviet Union had enough nuclear weapons, and the U.S. had more than enough. If there was a nuclear war, both sides would destroy each other. So we had the phenomena known as mutually assured destruction, MAD, or MAD. And madness it was indeed, but this became in a way a, an equilibrium, which we've talked about before in this show, and thus created the architecture for arms control agreements where since neither side could really prevail in a nuclear war, both sides sort of stopped really using, or especially the US, which had had nuclear primacy, sort of abandoned that and thought it was like no longer viable. And so we had many, many arms control agreements that limited or regulated nuclear weapons. And since the Soviet Union collapsed and Russia became much weaker, the United States, instead of you know, moving in a direction of peace, has not only expanded NATO, but basically torn up each of those treaties or failed to renew them. And it's clear that the U.S. is on the path and is seeking, and this is actually a matter of policy. You don't have to sort of listen to me or listen to anybody. You can read the documents for yourself. The U.S. seeks nuclear primacy and military supremacy, both on planet Earth and in outer space. And the point of it is to be able to convince any rival that should there be a confrontation, the U.S. can win. The U.S. can win a nuclear war. And so there is this kind of excess confidence, this new hubris, this new arrogance. We, we're the tough guys. Might makes right. And our might, our nuclear might, is better than your nuclear might, and we can win the war. Anyway, the point is that it seems to me that under these circumstances, with the equilibrium of the old Cold War shattered, and where the U.S. is now preparing for major power conflict while seeking actively and, and trying to achieve nuclear primacy and military supremacy, and having abandoned and ripped up the, the arms control agreements that created the equilibrium, we're actually on a very dangerous path. And I say this without hyperbole, without exaggeration, because 
when there's an unmanaged rivalry, as opposed to a rivalry that has equilibrium, it becomes very dangerous. Even if you, the, the protagonists don't set off starting uh, wanting war, war can happen because climbing the escalation ladder in a condition of unmanaged rivalry can lead politicians either in or out of uniform to make fateful decisions. It seems to me that, and the reason I want to end on this, is that I believe this is really where we are in the world, that U.S. imperialism and militarism and this new policy of primacy in all ways, hegemony in all ways, domination in all ways, including in the military sphere, is leading us in a very dangerous direction where a third world war, which seemed to be not real, not going to happen, certainly had been reduced, the chances reduced by the 70s, it's back and it's real. And anyway, I want to I get your comments as the final question topic in this show. Well, I, I completely agree with that in the sense that I think that the threat of war, of different levels of war, but probably escalating war, is very real, more real now than it has been for a long time, and real with the potential, as you say, for for very, very serious, indeed, I mean, for final conflict and, and destruction. I mean, the idea somehow that nuclear war could be limited, could be restricted, oh, we're just going to have this one exchange or something, that's not coping with reality, you know? And the prospect of the beginning and then the very, very rapid escalation to a point of total annihilation, really, do we want to go back to that? I mean, I know that the vast majority of people living on the planet today don't have memories of what it was like in the 1950s or the early 1960s. They don't have you know, their own kind of visceral recollection of the fear, certainly here in the United States, that we felt during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we can talk about the politics of the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, and that's fine. But the reality is that that was a very, very scary moment, a, very, a moment where we came very close to nuclear conflagration. And it was basically through the, the restraint and the wisdom of the Soviets that the planet did not get incinerated. The sort of macho posturing of the Kennedy brothers and that administration brought us right to the brink. But fortunately, we know we didn't go over the edge. But it was super close and super scary. You know, I know you remember that. I remember that. But most people today don't. And so I think that, you know, it's important to try to revive a comprehension of just how dangerous, just how menacing nuclear weapons can be. They have proliferated beyond the origins. And I think that in many ways that's unfortunate, although certainly understandable because, you know, formerly colonized societies want to be able to defend themselves. There shouldn't be a nuclear monopoly in the hands of the United States. But it would be better, you know, obviously for nuclear weapons in general to be banned and dismantled and, and have that whole technology set aside. That's not something that I think that's on the immediate agenda, but it's something that would be better for the planet and everybody on it. But right now we are in a very, very dangerous moment and American politicians are escalating their rhetoric every day. And this idea of demonizing China, demonizing Russia, pushing on every possible front to intensify confrontation, this is not a healthy thing. And it's not something that, that is good for anybody, except maybe the profits of the military industrial complex. But it's something against which all certainly progressive elements, socialist elements, communist elements, you know, we all need to be uniting and we need to be pushing back 
We need to find ways and seek ways to take this into the public conversation the way we are now, but also, you know, into the streets and into public campaigns to try to change the direction, try to change the environment, the context, the political situation in which we find ourselves. Peace gives us all the chance to, you know, pursue our agendas, our objectives, and, you know, winding up in a nuclear confrontation It is the unthinkable, but we need to think about it and think about how to stop it. Dr. Ken Hammond is a professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University. He's the founding director of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State University. He's an organizer and activist with Pivot to Peace. You've been listening to The Socialist Program. If you enjoy this show... Please support independent programming, our show, by going to patreon.com forward slash the socialist program and subscribing. We can do this show with the support of those who listen to it, but not without you. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.